God has rescued us from dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the Son he loves so much. The Son who got us out of the pit we were in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. We look at this Son and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this Son and see God's original purpose in everything created. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. You received Christ Jesus, the master. Now live him. You're deeply rooted in him. All right, Trinity Church, how you doing today? Yeah, what'd you think of that last song? Wasn't that great? It's so powerful. I just love it, and it just really just totally dials in on where we're going today. And if you're new here, I want to welcome you. My name's Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity. We're in week five of a series called Rooted, and we're walking through the book of Colossians. If you have a Bible today, you can make your way there to Colossians chapter 2. And if you don't know where Colossians is, go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you don't find any of those books, nothing I said will help you. So I'm sorry for that. So at least put you in the ballpark in the back half of your Bible in the New Testament. And uh, we're going to keep moving forward on that. If you, in your Trinity this week, you have these notes inside of there, these green ones, if you want to get those out. It'll help you track with us as we walk through the message today. But as well, if you're in one of our home groups, these are your prompts for your discussion uh, this week. So if that goes well. I wanted to let you know about something we found out about this morning, just to be prepared for the next couple of weeks in your drive. If you live here in Redlands, you have noticed that our freeway is having a lot of fun right now. Um, a friend of mine who's from out of town was driving through on his way to Palm Springs. We were talking on Friday on the phone, and he made the mistake of going in the single lane. And as he was stuck and watching his car zoom by, he's thinking, what on earth have I done? And I said, well, now you'll know better for next time. So it's all good. Uh, but you'll notice some of our freeway on-ramps. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to 6th Street expecting to get on the freeway and thought, oh, there's a five-foot hole. We're not going to go that way today. So I wanted you to know that uh, Larry was sharing with me this morning that the eastbound exit for Ford Street, the next two Sundays, is going to also have a four-foot hole. So you won't be able to get off the freeway at Ford to come this way if you're going down the 10 towards uh, Banning. So just be aware of that. And the fact is, I told you today, but you're going to forget. And then you'll drive and go, oh, Dad did say that. And it'll be okay. <laughs> but I uh, just plan a little bit more time and, and you'll be set to go. Well, um, what we're doing today, we, we are kind of coming to the end of the first half of the book of Colossians, and it's, it's really going to kind of connect a lot of dots, because here's what Paul's been doing. Paul has been kind of hinting at, teasing out the idea that there's a concern he has for this local group of believers, and he's going to come real clear with it today. And, and the bottom line is this. What we've seen in the book of Colossians is that two big ideas are emerging. Number one, what is the context of the gospel? Meaning, who are you and who is Jesus? And as we understand clearly those two realities, what we find is that Jesus is so great a savior and we have so great a need. And those two things are becoming evident over and over through this book so far. But what we're also going to find as we continue into the second half of the book is once you have received or responded to the gospel, now what? What does it look like to live out of the truth of a Jesus-centered life? And so that's where we're going to be going uh, next. Today, kind of what we're looking at is this idea of that there were a group of people that were threatening 
the, the local church there in Colossae, not threatening like we're so big and bad, but threatening like we're going to derail you. Remember we saw a couple weeks ago, if you continue, if you don't let go of the hope that you have in heaven, the, this group of Colossian believers were letting go. They were being derailed. And we're going to see it was all based on fencing in of rules. A new set of rules, rules that had nothing to do with what God taught were being introduced into the church. And as a result, people were being led astray. And so Paul's going to be crystal clear on that idea. So let's begin today. Here's our now what idea. What are we supposed to do with today's message? Since you're rooted in Christ, we remember that from the beginning of chapter 2, having been rooted, since you're rooted in, in Jesus, don't fall for things that attempt to add to what he's already accomplished. And that's, that's the idea of what we want to walk away with. Let's dive in today. Number one in your notes, beware of letting unqualified judges evaluate your salvation. We'll give you the, why that word judges is so important in just a minute. Beware of letting unqualified judges evaluate your salvation. We're in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you know this is really straightforward language. Like Paul's not pulling punches. He's not beating around the bush. He's going for it. Be aware that there are people among you that are trying to derail you in these particular ways. Let's back up a little bit. Let's remind ourselves that the idea, back to audience and, and author, Paul is writing to a group of people who have put their faith in Jesus, but they were not ones that he personally led to the Lord, which is unique. Most of his letters are written to a group of believers that he had been with and, and be, had established a church. Colossians or Colossae is different. It was a guy named Epaphras who was brought to the Lord by Paul. Epaphras did what we all want to be doing. He went back to his people. He went back to his relational world, this town in Colossae. He met Christ in Ephesus, about 100 miles east. He goes back to his town in Colossae and begins to tell the people he grew up with, the people who were his neighbors, the people he worked with, you don't understand. God has come to make all things new in the person of Jesus. I want you to know him too. And thus the church at Colossae began as people believed what Epaphras told them. Epaphras gets word back to Paul. Paul is now, by the time this letter is being written, writing from a Roman jail. And as he's writing to them, he has heard not only of the great news, and that's what we read in the first part of Colossians 1, this wonderful prayer. Paul says, we give thanks, we rejoice every time we think of you and the faith that is taking root among you. But Paul hears not only that there are people who put their faith in Jesus, but now they're struggling. There's some concerns. And like you would expect, where Paul doesn't know this group of people, he's kind of beginning to tease out the idea. He's teasing out the problem. This letter is so different from 1 Corinthians. In the church in Corinth, Paul established that church, and he goes right at it at the beginning, a very quick brief, hello, now you've got problems. 
So this is a very different letter from that. Colossians is warming up to the idea, but now where we're finally at, you've been with us, now we're in week five, now he finally goes, this is what the issue is. So as we dial in, the first part of what we read was the word therefore. Every time we read the word therefore in the Bible, we need to ask what it's there for, exactly. Therefore is always like a, a word that is saying like in summary. And this is where we, it's saying in summary of what I just said. If you were here with us last week, you remember how we finished that part of the passage was just words of just such great triumph. We had a cross over here on stage and we talked about how all of us have an IOU with God, meaning God created us and as our creator, he deserves that we would live his way. Every single one of us without fail have failed. And as a result, we have this IOU and, and what the imagery that we read in Colossians 2 is that Jesus takes that IOU and he nails it to the cross. But the great news is he doesn't nail it to the cross in a way that that's showing the account of what you owe. He has already blotted it out. He's canceled the code that stood opposed to you, that condemned you, nailing it to the cross. And then we saw these powerful words. If you would have been on the ground that day, what would have looked like defeat for Jesus? What would it look like him being disrobed, humiliated as he was run through town and finally killed on a tree? Paul says from a cosmic lens, the way God saw Good Friday, it were the spirits who were opposed to Jesus, those who were opposed to us that were actually humiliated, that were disrobed, they were run through town, and they were defeated at the cross. Yea, God? That is such great news. And so in light of that, that victory, that mission accomplished, Paul says, therefore, in light of this truth, therefore, don't let these things take hold of you. Don't let anyone judge you by your observance or lack thereof of non-essential religious services and holy days. I want you to see this. We talk a lot about this every time we see an imperative verb, an imperative verb in your notes. Paul was directing or commanding the readers of his letter to take responsibility for themselves and for who they were letting influence them. Every time we see an imperative verb, it's meant to do something with this. It's a directive. And so Paul, and we need to see this, we are expected as followers of Jesus to continue to ask the question, is what they're saying, is what he's saying, is what she's saying, is what they're saying true or not? And how do we know if something is true or not? Based on this book you're holding in your hands. It's not about my opinions or anyone who'd stand on this stage. In, in your Bible study, in a small group, it's not about what we think and what we formulate. It's what the Word of God says. This is our standard. This is our authority. And what we're going to see today, because people were living outside of this truth, the Colossian believers were realizing, wait a second, what you're saying, it's not what God said. Therefore, we have a problem. And that's what Paul is raising uh, raising the issue so they can see it. We see this powerful illustration, the idea of a shadow cast by something that is real. And this is what he says. He says, these religious feasts, even the Sabbath, even this day of rest, they were all a vague depiction of what was to come. Like you get that. that, that picture makes sense to you. If you're walking and the sun is at a certain angle and it casts a long shadow from where you are, you can see a general reality of the shape of who you are, but then if you pan and just take a look, it's vibrantly different. And what Paul is saying is, they've been focusing on the vague representation, the shadow, when Jesus in living flesh has come among us. Jesus is the reality. 
It made me think of it this way. Some of us have been on cell phones for long enough that you remember going into a, um, like a, a Costco or a T-Mobile or AT&T, and you remember them having samples that didn't work. Like nowadays, you get to play with everything and it's all great. But back in the day, they had these copies that were just like this kind of thing like, oh, if I wanted to know how much a cell phone weighed, I would know. Like, that really matters, I guess. And so there'd be these like imitation versions, these plastic versions that you could look at. So imagine this, go back with me in time. Think of this down here, high school students, how many of you would say back in the day, this is what your mom and dad let you play with, right? Did any of us have any of these? We let our kids, we'd steal them, well, we wouldn't steal them, but we somehow received them from T-Mobile and we would go, here kids, play with this, and it's not gonna do a whole lot, right? So imagine that you take one of these and you have one and you go, they're gonna, they're gonna send me mine in the mail this week, but in the meantime, I'll take one home just to kind of get used to it. Well, that seems weird, but maybe that was okay. So you'd walk around, you'd have it in your pocket, what's it feel like? And then all of a sudden, in the mail that week, your real phone comes. But you've grown so attached to the play one, right? I just really love the way it looks, and it's really sparkly. And, and you're like, but that one doesn't, I know, I know it doesn't really do what it's supposed to, but it's really nice. And we would all go, you're nuts. You should use the one that works, right? This one just was to, to show you it was a copy of what was to come. And the reality is that's what was going on with this hyper-religion, this fact of people who were stuck in an old covenant who didn't want to let go of the copy to hold on to what was real. That's the image that Paul's giving. Paul also cautions him to steer clear of those who are enthralled by their spiritual experiences. And how he's created within them a false, this creates within them a false humility that actually becomes an exclusive arrogance. It's significant that Paul talks about the specific type of spiritual experiences he's talking about. He mentions the worship of angels. Can I just tell you, nowhere in the Bible is any follower of God ever expected to worship angels. If you remember in your Old Testament, just the opposite. God would send a messenger, he'd send an angel to a person in the Old Testament narrative, and this angel would come before them, and they're brilliant and scary all at once, and people would fall on their face to worship, and the angel every time would say, don't worship me, I'm not who, you're not, you're not to be worried about me, worry about who I came from. He's the one that you worship in him alone. So angel worship is absolutely counter to anything that the Bible would teach. That's what is infiltrating this group of people. Within it, as you think about that, you even have to kind of go to the idea, I was doing some commentary work, and the question would be, why would people even, I mean, there's no scriptural reference, the Bible even teaches against that, why would they do that? And the, the commentators I was reading was basically saying this, I am so humble that I don't dare go to God directly, so I'll go to those who are in his courts. Like, I don't think I have access to God. He's too great, too powerful, but I'll, I'll, I'll communicate, I'll worship, I'll, I'll you know, request before those who serve in his courts. And you see this really bizarre kind of humility that comes out of that, that not only, not only makes sense, but like we've just said, is actually counter to what the Bible teaches and what the Bible demonstrates via narratives. They were coming across as people who are super spiritual. You know, we don't dare go before God. You guys are way too bold that you shouldn't be doing that. Be more humble like us. And Paul's saying it's just the opposite. It creates this bizarre spiritual exclusivity that absolutely has nothing to do with God's word. There's another powerful verb. I gave you one imperative verb earlier 
Uh, do not let someone judge. Later on, there's another imperative verb. The interesting word, it's this phrase, do not let them disqualify you. Do not let them disqualify you. It's another one. But the interesting thing, there's actually four words, four words in our short amount of text. We don't have a long passage today. Four words that are only found one time in the entire Bible are in this passage. That's something to take note of. It doesn't mean that they weren't found in Greek literature. They're known words otherwise, so they're not made up words, but they're only found this one time in the entire Bible in what we're reading today. And that's this word, disqualify you. In it, what we see, it's another imperative verb. And, and the idea is, it's actually, when you hear that word, you're kind of like, what does that mean? It actually has the idea, think in an athletic contest, someone who would step in as a judge and, and deem you as someone who was out of bounds or deem you as someone who's wrong when actually you did what was right and should be rewarded. So think of it this way. Some of you were watching college football yesterday, okay? I didn't because I saw my team lose horribly on Friday night, so I don't need Saturdays, right? So imagine you're watching a game. You're in the second quarter. Game's going on, you know, thousands of people in the stadium, TV cameras. Imagine someone leaving the crowds, hopping the fence, according, apparently, security's nowhere to be found, and they make their way, and they start mugging all the referees. Now, you've wanted to do that because of bad calls, but now they're really doing it. Mugging the referees, taking off their shirt, putting on the stripes, and walking out and saying, play ball. Well, it's actually a baseball analogy, isn't it? Anyway. Um, <laughs> Hike, right? So I know my sport's a little better than that. Play ball. So anyway, um, but imagine that happening. Here's a simple question. Would the coaches, would the players on the field stand for that? Absolutely not. Here's the question Paul's saying. Then why are you? Why are you letting unqualified referees come in and disqualify you from your walk with the Lord and from the centrality of Jesus in your life? Do not let unqualified referees call the shots, is basically what Paul's saying. And it's a very powerful image that you understand this essence in, in great form. He says that people like this, though they appear to be very spiritually humble and admirable, they're really actually full of themselves. It's a complete arrogance. He calls it a false humility. And they don't have the mind of Christ. Instead, they have a fleshly mind that governs their behaviors. In all of this, Paul goes on to say that these influencers have lost their connection with Jesus, lost their connection with the head, who isn't simply a figurehead, but Jesus is absolutely in control of his body. Also, he's the one who is the orchestrator of growth in his body. So everything about the body of Christ, appropriately named so, comes from the head. Jesus is the leader. Jesus is the one causing it to grow. And it's such a great reminder. I love the way that Paul says these words to the church at Corinth. This church at Corinth was creating superstars within the, the leaders within their body and, and picking sides, becoming very divisive. Paul said, you guys are nuts. You're missing the whole point. Look what he says, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Jesus is the one who develops growth. And that's why, like we prayed today as a group of elders, we absolutely believe that Trinity Church is Jesus' church. No one lays claim to it except for him. So our whole attitude, posture, prayer, God, show us. Jesus, show us where we ought to go. We will go. Just make it clear. Number two in your notes today, live according to your identity in him, 
not according to others' preferences. Live according to your identity in Jesus, not according to others' preferences. Picking it up, Colossians 2.20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Look at the, so again, like we've said today, very crystal clear. Paul is not beating around the bush. He's not being vague. He's being right up front. Hey, there is a problem because there are people in your ranks that are taking the role of certain types of foods to a degree that they ought not be taken, and that is tripping you up. That is causing you to stumble. I want you to be very careful of that. Look how he begins, since you died. We've read all throughout this letter so far in the first week so much about the things that we've died to and the things we've been made alive to. And remember, in each of those phrases, there's are passive verbs, things that have been done to us, for us. Today, we're gonna finish our service with this great song, this great anthem of being made alive. And that's what this passage is about. You've died to these things. They no longer have a hold on you. It's the same phrase that we saw last week, the elemental spiritual forces of this world. And we concluded last week that, that what, is, what is that phrase? That's a really tough phrase to understand. Commentators will tell you it's very hard to understand. But we kind of landed on this idea. We concluded that it's the forces that relate to before we were in Christ, before we followed Jesus, the elemental or basic way that we saw life. The basic way that we live, what we thought was right and wrong, that's what that's referring to. And Paul is saying, you're dead to that way of thinking. You're dead to those things having a hold on you. Why would you ever go back? This is about moving forward, moving away from the old life, not going back to it. So as followers of Jesus who are now in Christ, these Colossian Christians are no longer bound to those elemental things because they participated in Jesus dying. Remember we said that a couple of weeks ago, to be in Christ means that somehow you've been included in the things that Jesus has done for you. And he's, they're done with the things that previously held them. That phrase, or that word translated, you died, is specifically rendered as that which stresses the ending of the former. It's got an extra prefix to it that means away from. So I'm not just dead to something, but it's away from me. It has no hold on me. I love, I don't usually quote the King James Version, but I love the rendering of this phrase. And it reads, ye be dead. Sounds like a pirate. Arr, ye be dead, you know? <laughs> And, uh, and I love, like, if you just reread that with that phrase, ye be separated from what was former, now that ye identity be in Christ. And I just love that idea. It just sounds so to the point. Ye be dead. You know, this isn't anything that's true of you anymore now that you put your faith in Christ. And what are the specific examples that Paul is mentioning about this former way of life? It's like a lot of religion, a lot of don'ts. Don't taste, don't touch, don't hold don't handle. These are issues that related to dietary issues. And I want you to hear today, the dietary issues that were facing, the church was facing in the first century were not related to health-based issues. This isn't a gluten issue, okay? It's not what we're talking about. This is actually an issue that instead relates to an understanding that God has prohibited, God has moved out of what's available to us certain foods. And where do we know? I mean, we think back, the earlier part of the phrase today came from, we understand all those were Jewish things, a new moon festival, different religious feasts, 
and that of the Sabbath of rest. So this is most likely another connection to that idea. And we see that all throughout Paul's letters in the New Testament, that there was such a challenge if Jesus came as a Jew, who was not only a rabbi, but ultimately Messiah, then the challenge was for people to think through how much of that Jewish mindset of the Jewish rules and regulations still carry into not only what Jesus came to do as the appointed Messiah to the Jews, but the savior of the world. He came to all of us. And so the constant tension in the New Testament letters is, do you have to be Jewish to be a Christian? And what Paul is continuing, by the way, Paul, as much a Jew as anybody was on the planet, a high-ranking Pharisee, he'd done, gone through all the hoops, and he's telling people categorically that stuff was part of a former covenant, but it's not part of the new. The new covenant in Christ, these things are not binding on us any longer. So that, this is like a knockdown drag out all throughout the New Testament, but I would say not reserved for only 2,000 years ago, something we still struggle with today. Different types of groups as they see Jesus and read the Bible and have a different interpretation of what is still binding. These are some of the same challenges that we face now. We know what Paul, as he's going to talk about the food thing, just I really appreciate his logic. He's saying this. He's saying, I'll reread that verse. This is the part we just read. It says, these rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, meaning you eat them. Food-based things, you eat them and they're gone, it's done. They're based on merely human commands and teachings. And so what Paul's kind of bubbling to the top is, you are completely being derailed from a focus and a dependency on Jesus alone based on what you had for lunch. This doesn't compute, it's not the value. You're missing the bigger picture of Christ and a, and a complete reliance on him for stuff you ate today. Don't do that. Don't be confused by lesser things. Keep the main thing the main thing is what Paul's pushing on. As you read the New Testament, like I said a minute ago, all over these letters is always this issue at the very seminal stages of Christianity and a following of Jesus. What do we do with the old covenant and how that relates? But Paul says, though these things were prohibited in the old covenant, they're, they're a part of that era. Now we live in a new, a new covenant, a new commitment from God to us of how we are to live. So those things that were considered before unclean or inappropriate for God's unique people, they're not that way for us now. The prohibition, if you know, the prohibition list was long and included things that we eat, many of us every day like pork and shellfish. So according to the Colossian issue that was going on, there was no bacon wrapped shrimp. That was not allowed and not gonna happen. <laughs> which would have been very challenging for Todd. See it this way, though. I want you to see, and this related to the food thing is powerful. Sometimes we think about, you know, related to the new covenant, that happened, the, the, the church age kind of begins on the other side of the cross. Jesus dies, raises again, ascends to heaven, and the church launches. Watch this. Even in the gospels, even while Jesus was among people pre-going to the cross, he was actually undoing the old covenant, Mark chapter seven, verse 17. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciple asked him about this parable, meaning Jesus had just told a story that had this profound spiritual truth to it. He says, are you so dull? He asked, don't you get it? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. And watch this phrase, parenthetically, Mark adds it. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus, even in the middle of his ministry, before he'd even gone to the cross, 
already is making this statement, that was an old covenant. And that covenant was binding when it was there. But we don't live in it anymore. This is the new. Look how Paul, in, like I said, in so many letters, look how he says it to one of his apprentices, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That's, that's, that's strong language. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Like I said, he's pulling no punch. They forbid people to marry and, to, and order them to abstain from certain foods. By the way, both of those ideas had an, an ascetic, A-S-C-E-T-I-C, an ascetic idea that the way to really be close to God is to completely deny every kind of interest or, or craving that you have, and that's going to therefore honor him. And Paul's undoing that and saying that's not what God has prescribed. So they, to order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Verse 4, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. So, like I said, numerous places in scripture that talk about this old covenant is indeed former. It's passed away. A new one is here. Let's now understand what is binding in the new and let go of the shadow, let go of what's old. Now, though, like I said a minute ago on some of these issues today, they haven't gone away. They're not just first century. They still are issues that people are facing with and dealing with today. But there's a host of other ones. A host of other ones that aren't specifically named here, but it's the problem when people have made man-made, not God-directed, preferences that people attempt to make God binding onto others regarding their salvation. Here would be an example. Some would say that you're not really a Christian unless you attend or belong to my denomination. Now, you might think that's crazy talk, Todd. No one believes that. So I was a youth pastor years ago over across the desert in Lancaster, and I remember Joanne and I were in the mall, we were walking through just on a Saturday morning, and a guy stops me and he wants to share with me about his faith, and I listen, and I go, yeah, let's talk. And so he begins to share, and it's a very Jesus-centered kind of thing, gospel he's talking about, and I go, you know, that's really great, let me stop you right there. I'm a follower of Jesus too, I'm actually a youth pastor at a church in town, love what you're doing, and, and then he's like, yeah, but, but I have more to say. I said, okay. And so he began to talk, and, and what he began to share was that that's really great and all, Todd, but this is really the truth, and it's all found at my church. And I just looked at him sideways, and I said, so wait a second, you're telling me that I've told you, I've put my faith in Jesus, I told you that I'm in vocational ministry, but I'm not really saved unless I had, yeah. Okay, uh, we'll be talking another day. And that profoundly affected me that day, listening to this guy and go, wow, I just don't even begin to see in scripture what you're talking about and how that could be true. But it, it happens. Another train of thought, you're not really a Christian if you weren't baptized in our church. Our church, it has to be here. I know those churches. You're not really a Christian if you haven't been baptized. Now, we know, biblically speaking, we just celebrated last, earlier this month baptisms of the lake. But remember, we made it super clear. This is not saving anyone today. They have already professed their faith. They read you their stories. This is what Jesus has done in my life. Now I want everyone to know. It's that public demonstration of that. That's what we were doing. It's an issue of obedience after faith, but not for faith, not for salvation. 
You're not really a Christian if you haven't had a supernatural spiritual experience that evidences the Spirit's dwelling in you, like speaking in tongues. You're not saved until. And I would go, I have a hard time seeing that in Scripture. Certain groups report that. You're not really a Christian if you've sinned too much and now lost your salvation. Other churches believe this. So the point is, this kind of idea of Jesus plus something, this is what it keeps boiling down to. And I want to say that I know over the course of two years at Trinity and talking to people, I know numerous people at Trinity who have walked away from a, a, a season, maybe a lifetime, involved in a church that believed something like and taught what we just shared. And I want to say, I want to commend you not so much because you're here, but I want to commend you because of what you did. You came to a place where you realize, I don't think this is what the Bible teaches. You saw it lived out, you saw it in scripture, and you said, these two don't mix. This isn't essential for faith, isn't essential for salvation. I have to do something else. And with it, always comes a cost. With it comes a cost of community. With it comes a cost, potentially, of reputation. And I absolutely want to tell you how much I appreciate you saying on the grounds of simply the gospel truth, I don't believe this is right. We need to do something else. Those are strong, courageous steps to make, and you've made them. And I really am in awe of that and grateful to see that in your life. Here's what it all boils down to. The heart of the matter is an emphasis on I. It's all about what I have to do to complement what Jesus did for me. And like we talked about last week, every single time I want to add something to the cross, I'm actually bringing down the supremacy, bringing down the centrality of Jesus, because it is, it's something that's supplemental to something else. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Your rescue from sin, death, condemnation, and punishment all depends on what Jesus did for you at the cross on the empty tomb. There's nothing we can or should do that can somehow complement his accomplishment of what he's done for us. Or maybe as David Bowden would say, does your if depend on I or depend on Christ? Take a look at this video. If, if I, this is the condition, the why, the question mark over each of our lives, if, if I, if I am good enough, if I don't mess up too much, if I go to the right church, if I prove to God my worth, if I pray before I eat, if I read scripture before I sleep, if I do enough good works, if I share the gospel with those who search, if I always give it my best try, if I do the most I can before I die, if, 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 if I. Now the problem with these questioning lines is not actually that you're asking if, but that your if is dependent upon your I. Because if you're trying to provide yourself with an equation that assures you of your salvation and you're trying to use yourself as the standard, the cause, the determinant, the foundation, then all you will ever get out of your internal interrogations to the question, have I finally done enough to receive salvation, will be a resounding negative declaration, 
no, no, you aren't good enough. No, you messed up too much. No, you did not do enough good works. No, you did not prove to God your worth. No, you didn't give it your best try. No, you didn't do enough before you died. If your if is based on your I, then your assurance of salvation will always be denied. And yet, for every single one of us, this is what we've tried to base our salvation on self-evaluation. But all we ever get out of this arrangement is condemnation. That's why you feel lacking, no matter how hard you try, because your if is based on your I. It's why you feel disobedient no matter how often you comply because your if is based on your I. It's why you feel distant like a misfit, like a second-class citizen. It's why you feel empty no matter how much you supply because your if is based on your I. And your I can never measure up to the standard of God on high. And that's not because his standards are awry, but it's because he is perfect and we always fall short of that prize. And so there is always condemnation for those who are in I. But there is good news. There is gospel free to all without price. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So let's make a new condition. Let's Let's ask a different why. With the old one gone, let's fly a freshly drawn question mark over each of our lives. Let's ask a new if to replace our if eyes. Let's ask if, if Christ, if Christ was good enough, if Christ loved so much, if Christ died to save his church, if Christ rose to give us his worth, if Christ provided bread of life to eat, if Christ fulfilled the scriptures by crushing death beneath his feet, if Christ performed every good work, sought out those who never searched, died the death we should have died, beat the grave to raise us to life, if, 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 if Christ. Now, the joy within these questioning lines is that our if is no longer dependent on something that we supplied. Instead, the if of our salvation is dependent on the one who loved us so much that he was crucified. So let's abandon our if eyes and run towards if Christ. Let's move from feeling like I'm condemned to say I'm convinced that neither life nor death, neither heights nor depths, not my own faults or mess-ups, not my guilt or distrust, nothing can separate me from the love of God because all my ifs Christ answered on the cross. And so we can ask one final if, and with it, all condemnation is crushed. If God is for us, who can be against us?
I knew you'd love that. It was so dialed in, so spot on to what we're talking about today. And it keeps coming back. Jesus, help me keep my affection, my attention on you and not what I can do to complement what you've already done for me. Number three in our notes today, restrictive religion doesn't defeat the flesh, only the spirit does. Restrictive religion doesn't defeat the flesh, only the spirit does. Our final verse today, Colossians 3.23, such regulations indeed have an appearance, these regulations of, of diet or services to attend and all that, they have an appearance of wisdom. With their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Last part of our passage today really pulls back the veil and says, here's the problem with all of these approaches. You have to understand, I believe at the heart, though it is a self-reliance and, and a thing that is apart from simply putting my trust, my hope in what Jesus has done, they all spring from an area of saying, just like David did, I'm not good enough. I want to somehow prove to God, I want to get these things under control so that I can be um, acceptable to him. They come from that, they appear to have wisdom, but instead they betray a lot of realities. And at the end of the day, Paul simply says, they don't work. They betray a self-help method that actually brings Jesus' supremacy down and elevates one's own efforts to the point of being, in part, some way to make us right with God. And as it says in this, in this aspect, it gives the appearance of wisdom, but is really an expression of pride. Look in your notes. That's the whole point of the gospel. No one is right before God, and it is necessary for everyone to be reconciled to God through Jesus. We all absolutely stand helpless outside of what Jesus has done for us. Think of it this way. Let's say that you have a four-year-old and you're telling him great news. Hey, we're gonna go on a trip. We're gonna get on a plane and fly somewhere. It's gonna be really fun. It's a vacation. You're gonna absolutely love it. And your four-year-old comes to you and, and the last time that you guys played Monopoly together, your four-year-old has some cash that he sewed away. It's like, these are my winnings, dad. And he comes out and he tells you, he's like, dad, I'm gonna help pay for the trip. This is gonna be awesome. Here you go. And, and at first you think, oh, that's cute. And he's wanting to contribute. But then he becomes adamant, dad, this is how we're getting on the plane. I've got one, I've got two, I've got, you know, here it is. And you're looking at him, and at first what seemed admirable, there was a sense of desire to participate, now you realize is just plain stubborn. And you know full well, Monopoly money doesn't buy anything to get on an airplane. But he's convinced he can do something to contribute. This is the problem with what was going on in the early church and the problem that goes on with us. God, you need my ex, my thing, to somehow make me acceptable to you rather than simply trust a God who's already provided. This is how Paul boils it down at the end. I told you earlier today there were four words that are unique in the Bible in this passage. Here are the last three. They're all in this verse. He uses the word self-imposed worship, and I was like, what does that mean? That's a, a weird phrase. It literally means a love for religion. That is a that is a fascinating phrase right there. It's the idea of self-willed religion. I need a set of rules. A quick tip, I have grown up and been around people who have really been steeped in legalism, which a lot of this is what we're talking about today. And what's really fascinating for a long time, I looked at that lifestyle and I thought, man, that would be so hard. Who would ever want all this stack of rules? You've gotta be to be right with God. But then you know what I realized after talking to a few people? It is much easier. 
it is much easier for you to understand my religiosity, my rightness with God, based on a bunch of rules that you can watch me keeping. It is much harder to live by the Spirit and to trust God not only for my salvation, but for my growth and development to be more like Jesus. That's what this is saying, self-willed religion. Harsh treatment, it's an unsparing severity. I've mentioned the word ascetic earlier today. That's the underlying tone of this. The more that we can push down any kind of human interest or craving, can I just say that sounds a lot like false religions that teach that, that are totally godless, that was infiltrating the church. And the last word, indulgence, means to fill up or to satisfy. So as though the flesh, if it has a a full mark, you could somehow fill that off and be done with it. And what we all know and the way we've lived, your flesh is never satisfied. Always craving, wanting more. So Paul says, and he has this powerful phrase, they're not only man-made, they not only evidence hypocritical humility, but they attempt to control fleshly impulses with stringent rules when what's necessary is the Holy Spirit's control, not human willpower. Look at the way that Paul wrote it to the Galatian church, Galatians 5, verse 16. So I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And here's why. For the fleshly de- flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now we'll see that. Now as we move into the second half of Colossians next week, we're going to see, God, if you help us understand that everything is centered on what Jesus has done for us, now that we've responded to the truth, How ought we to live? And that's what the rest of Colossians is about. So here's how we wrap it up today. Here's our now what statement. Since you're rooted in Jesus, don't fall for things that attempt to add to what he's already accomplished. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today as a people who are so grateful for your word, grateful for the truth. Many of us, God, in this room would have been caught and trapped in a world of of self-imposed religion, of, of wanting a set of rules that somehow we feel like we can manage our relationship with you based on how many boxes we're checking off. And we're so grateful to have this truth and understand no degree of box checking will ever make us right with you. It is what Jesus and Jesus alone has done for us. So we thank you for going ahead of us. We thank you for meeting our need before we even knew we had it. And we're thankful that it's all bound up in your son. You may be here today and you would say, Todd, I've actually been walking that road for a long time. I have tried to make religious rules enable me to be good enough for God. I'm ready today. I'm ready to make a change by A, I'm gonna admit. I admit that I am desperately in need of a savior. No amount of rule keeping, is ever gonna make me right enough acceptable before a holy God. B, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the only savior available, not partial, not a complement to something else, he and he alone. Because he lived a sinless life, he died a sacrificial death, he was raised supernaturally on the third day. And C, today I choose. I choose to say, Jesus, I put my trust in what you've accomplished, and now I wanna live out of that strength, live out of that reality, in a life that pleases you. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. It is indeed a light to our paths. And thank you so much that you have indeed brought us back from the dead and made us alive. We pray in Jesus' great name, amen.